Hey, good morning, everybody. I'm Aaron. This is my wife, Ashley. And this stinker up front was my son, Malachi. Um, so we're going to read from the book of uh, Exodus chapter 25. Or chapter 25. Um, Make a table of acacia wood, 36 inches long, 18 inches wide, 27 inches high. Overlay it with pure gold and run a gold molding around the edge. Decorate it with a three-inch border all around and run a gold molding all along the border. Make four gold rings for the table and attach them at the four corners next to the four legs. Attach the rings near the border to hold the poles that are used to carry the table. Make these poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Make special containers of gold for the table, bowls, ladles, pitchers, and jars to be used in pouring out liquid offerings. Place the bread of the presence on the table to remain before me at all times. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, church. It's good to see you here this morning. Now, what kind of Christmas passage was that? Aaron, are you sure that was the right passage? Are you sure? Oh, yeah, it was the one I gave you. That is the right passage. So why in the world are we talking about some gold table for bread and a tent out in the desert for a Christmas service today? Well, partly because I want us to see that all of Scripture, all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, even obscure passages like this in the Old Testament, is all about the significance of Christmas. Context makes things make sense, right? And we have to start by putting Christmas in context. It doesn't make sense otherwise. It's, it's like watching the, the series finale of your favorite TV show, like, like Breaking Bad or something, going to work the next day, talking to your coworker who watched the series finale as well. He said he loved it. And then you find out he didn't watch any of the other episodes at all. How can he appreciate or even understand the last episode? Why is Jesse racing away in an El Camino screaming and crying and laughing? Doesn't make any sense if you missed all the other episodes, right? Additionally, you know, a person from an isolated tribe in, say, like Papua New Guinea or something, they would naturally think that some of our Christmas traditions are weird. They would naturally think that some of our Christian traditions are weird. They don't have any category for it. They have no context for it. Uh, Jim Gaffigan talks about how chopping down a tree and putting it in the living room sounds like the behavior of a drunk man. His wife asks, why is there a pine tree in the living room? And he says that he likes it, and we're going to decorate it for Jesus. And I'm going to hand my socks in the fireplace and fill them with candy. Now, this only makes sense somehow in our context, but it still might seem weird to some. And we all need to remember to continue to put Christmas in the context of the story 
of God. God who, who promised to send a king to rescue the world of darkness and advance peace on earth. Yes, amen. Stomp your feet, clap your hands, yell out amen or hallelujah. I'll take whatever I can get. The Old Testament is about the much-anticipated arrival of that king on that first Christmas in Bethlehem. And when our king shows up, he lived the way we were supposed to live because we couldn't. And then he died the way we were supposed to die so that we wouldn't. This king lived in your place. He died in your place. And he rose again to give you a renewed heart and a renewed life with God forever. And then together, on top of all of that, we serve our king to bring renewal to the world through God's truth and grace. All of scripture is about God redeeming all of his people and all of creation. It's what God's been up to since our fall from grace in the garden. It's what God is up to today until our king returns to bring it to completion. This right here, this story of God, is the ultimate cosmic drama of redemptive history. And you have been given a part in this cosmic drama. You need to see your story within the story of God. And it's the only way that your life makes sense. It's the only thing that will give your life true direction. You need to see your story within the story of God. So we need to see all of Scripture, including obscure passages like this one, we need to see that they point to the significance of Christmas, the birth of our King who would save the world. We won't see how this passage or any other passage is relevant otherwise. Context makes things make sense. So, let's put this passage about the table in context. It's called the table for the bread of presence. And we see this table within the context of the Old Testament tabernacle. And as weird as it may seem, what we've been doing for this Advent season for the last several weeks, we've been looking at Christmas through the lens of the tabernacle and what it means for us today, what it means for you today. We've been asking, what in the world does this tent in the desert have to do with the baby in the manger? Both of them, the tent and the manger, show you how God saves you. How he saves you back in the day of Exodus and today. So, let's do a quick review of the tabernacle and the story of God. Let's look at the context. So far, we've seen how the Israelites, God delivered the Israelites out of just brutal slavery in Egypt. Then God leads them on the longest camping trip in history through the wilderness to the promised land. And during their journey, the Lord sets up a tent of his own to be with his people, to dwell with his people so that his people can be with him and worship him. 
That right there, being with God and worshiping God is the best part and the point of freedom. That's the whole point of our freedom. In Exodus chapter 29, God says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. And you know what? The good news for you, the good news for you is that this is not just a story about people a few thousand years ago. This story is your story as well. You are a part of it. God redeems you and brings you out of slavery to sin so that you can be with him and worship him. This is what the tabernacle shows you. Now, this tabernacle had detailed instructions, so we know that it looked something like this. It was detailed. It was One-third of the book of Exodus was dedicated to the design and the building of the tabernacle. God was not just giving Moses busy work to do. There was a point behind it all. The tabernacle needed to illustrate a particular narrative, particular truth about who God is and what he is doing. It needed to illustrate God's reverse of the curse. Sin's curse that came with the fall in the Garden of Eden. And so looking at this strange tent in the context of the story of God makes it make sense. So we go back to the beginning. And in the beginning, God creates humankind, Adam and Eve. And he places us, he places humankind in paradise. There is no sin, there is no disease, no need for clothes, no shame. We were given every good fruit to eat with just one prohibition. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Humankind, Adam and Eve, walked with God in the cool of the day in paradise. Humankind had, had the fullness of God's presence and the fullness of God's provision. And that lasted two chapters. Chapter three. In chapter three, we take the forbidden fruit. With everything else that we had, we took the forbidden fruit, which really was an act of us declaring that we will be our own God and we will decide for ourselves what is good and bad. And suddenly there's broken in their hearts, there's brokenness in their relationship, and more importantly, there's brokenness between them and God. We did not just lose paradise. We lost God. We hear that and we're tempted to say, well, thanks Adam and Eve, right? Just messed everything up for us. But here's the thing. We would have done exactly the same thing. Because we're no better. And we still do the same thing today, where we decide for ourselves what is good and, and bad. We become, we make ourselves our, our own God. Adam simply represents us here. And at the end of Genesis 3, we are told God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword 
that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. But here's what's amazing. This is how amazing and gracious and loving God is. Even though humankind rebelled and broke us off, broke off uh, broke off a relationship with God, what we see in Exodus is that God in his grace pursues his people. He pursues his people and he says, I am joining you in the wilderness. I'm gonna be with you in the wilderness. I'm setting up my tent to dwell among you. There is hope for you because my presence is drawing near to you. But because of our sin now and, and his holiness, his presence is different than it was in the garden. There were necessary barriers and regulations. And so Moses sets up this, this, uh, this tabernacle in a specific way that illustrates how sinners like me can draw near to an all-holy, all-powerful God. In the last chapter of Exodus, Moses finishes the tabernacle and he says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So, here's the story. When you enter the courtyard, the first you think, thing you see is, is the bronze altar where sacrifices were made. It shows us that if we're going to enter God's holy presence at all, our sin must be dealt with. It shows us our need for a substitute to pay for our sin and a substitute who would redeem us. And then as you get closer to the most holy place of God's presence, the next thing you see is a bronze basin of water, a place for ceremonial washing, representing our need to be cleansed and moving closer to to the presence of God, you come to the tent. That first larger section is, is called the holy place, and inside on the left is a lampstand, representing our need for life-giving light in a dark world of dark hearts. And then in front of the veil, separating you from the most holy place in the presence of God, the place in right in front of the veil is the altar of incense, representing the prayer of God's people, reminding us that God wants us to approach him with all of our joys and all of our sorrows. And across from the lampstand is the table for the bread of presence, reminding us that God is with us. And he invites us to his table. He provides for us not just physical provision, but also spiritual provision. But the veil still separates us from God. You know, in the temple, in the design, there are all these references to the Garden of Eden. Even on the veil, which goes from wall to wall, one solid piece, there is a cherubim reminding us that we've been cut off from the presence of God. It's a picture of the Garden of Eden and our spiritual reality. Here is why this is so significant for us at Christmas. Jesus shows up to take away the barriers to the presence of God. 
Jesus becomes the ultimate sacrifice once and for all time. Jesus washes you completely clean from your sin. Jesus is the light, the light of the world. And Jesus prays for you as you pray in his name. And Jesus is the bread of life who was born to be broken on the cross so he can give you that life. And when Jesus died, the curtain was ripped open to the presence of God so you could be with him and worship him forever. All of scripture points to Jesus, Emmanuel, meaning God with us. It points to the significance of Christmas. This is the context for the table for the bread of presence. It's the context for the tabernacle. It's the context for Christmas. And it's the context for your whole life. Now we can talk about the bread of life and the presence of God. See, God's presence and his provision are the ultimate Christmas gifts. Again, this table is called the table for the bread of presence, and it included wine. And in the ancient Near Eastern homes, it was common for homes to to have a table set up with bread and wine. Having a table like this in the tabernacle was demonstrating that the tabernacle is the Lord's house, and you all are invited guests. Dining with someone in the ancient Near East was a sign of fellowship and peace. So the eating of that bread of the presence in God's house signified dining with our creator and reminding you that the Lord is at peace with his people. It reminded the Israelites that his presence had been with them through the wilderness and that he miraculously provided manna from heaven so that they can eat and have life. This manna showed up every day. All they had to do was go outside and scoop it up. It was a direct, wonderful, miraculous, daily testimony of God's power, commitment, deliverance, and love. Most people skip all the Old Testament stuff. In fact, a lot of Bibles are just printed with the New Testament. Maybe the Psalms are included. But it's the Old Testament that makes the New Testament make sense. After Jesus arrives on that first Christmas, he eventually refers to himself as the bread of life. In John chapter 6, we read about how Jesus feeds the 5,000, this this miraculous sign that that was to reveal who Jesus is. And and many people followed him. But he knew that many of them kind of missed the point. So he says, truly, truly, I I say to you, you are seeking. Wait a second. There we go. Sorry. Truly, truly, I say to you, I thought I had a typo. You are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And here's the point of that verse. Jesus doesn't come to us just to satisfy our physical longings, our physical hunger, or to make your life easier. Jesus knows your deeper need. He knows your hunger for true life, for eternal life, for life as it was meant to be. 
He is the bread who came down from heaven to give eternal life to all who believe in him by grace and grace alone. And, and some people, you know, some people were following Jesus not because they understood this spiritual significance of this feeding and provision in the wilderness. People were following him because Jesus filled their stomachs with bread. I'd probably be right there with him looking for more bread. In verse 27, Jesus says, do not work or do not seek for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. It is a gift. And it's a gift that is received by believing in Jesus. And even your faith is a gift. Now, I want to talk to people who might not be Christians yet, and then I want to talk to those of you who are. If you're not a Christian yet, I want you to know that it's totally understandable, totally natural, as you're kind of figuring out what this Christianity thing is about, you, because you've heard a lot of conflicting stories about it, it's natural to ask, will Christianity meet my needs here and now? Will it help me reach my goals? Will Christianity help me solve my problems? You know, I don't really care about the evidence. Will it work for me? But, but here's the deal. Uh, when, you, when people come to Christianity like that, it, it can't help you. It really can't. But <laughs> if Christianity is true, you know what that means? If Christianity is true, then it doesn't matter if it meets your physical needs right now or not. Maybe you have deep longings this Christmas, and you're hungry, and you're aching for you know, a Christmas miracle that will fix your life. Here's what you need to know. It's not enough. It's not enough to find the man or woman of your dreams. It's not enough for your difficulties to be replaced with comfort. It's not, a, it's not enough for your life to be comfortable or convenient. It's not enough for you to get the answers you want for your prayers. It's not enough. Jesus says you need, foil, uh, you need food that does not spoil the food that endures to eternal life. That is your deepest need. And if your deepest need is met, then you can face anything that this world throws at you. Nothing else can do that. Others of you who are Christians, you know, all of us, I think we have times where our faith doesn't go very deep. And we say things like, you know what, when I get married, then I'll be happy. When I'm single, then I'll be happy. When I have kids, then I'll be happy. When they move out, then I'll be happy. When I get a nicer place to live, then I'll be happy. When I make more money, then I'll be happy. When I get that job, then I'll be happy. And we're all like this from different times in our life. If I get this, then we'll be happy. And Jesus says, no. You won't. You'll never be truly happy if you look into those things. Granted, they're good things, but they can't live up to the expectation that only God can fulfill. 
And Jesus gives us a loving diagnosis. He says, you're trying to satisfy your hunger with food that spoils instead of the food that, that endures to eternal life. And again, Jesus is not being insulting here. It's a loving diagnosis. And he wants what is best for you. And the best for you is him. After this sermon, when, it's, when we're over and we start singing, there are a couple of verses I want to, that we'll be singing that I want to stand out to you. And it says, What gift of grace is Jesus, my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness, and freedom my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold. My hope is only Jesus, for my life is wholly bound to his. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing. All is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Christ says that he is the bread from heaven. And if you give your life to him, you will never have to hunger or thirst for anything else in life again because you have him, because all is mine in him. Just as the manna from heaven gave the Israelites life and the covenant meal that the leaders ate in the presence of God also was a reminder of the life that God had given them in the Exodus. If you trust in Christ you will have life too. Eternal life in God's presence. And just as the Old Testament priests in the tabernacle would consume the bread of presence and drink the wine, both of which pointed to God's gracious redemption and provision for his people, the New Testament says that you are a royal priesthood. And we gather together to consume the bread and the wine and the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper points us to your redemption in Christ. Jesus said in John's Gospel, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven Not as the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He gives you life. It's all of grace. It's all a gift. It's guaranteed. If you trust him. That's why Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. If you trust in Jesus, you will never, ever be turned away. It's only through his shed blood that you have forgiveness of sin. It's only by looking to Christ in faith and his life, his death, his resurrection, and ascension. It's only by the gospel that you possess eternal life. It is the reality of your redemption then that you celebrate when you participate in the Lord's Supper. You're celebrating your redemption through the Lord's Supper. And Christ is present in in the gathered body of the church as we consume the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper. 
It is his presence that is the best gift that we could ever receive. My question for you this morning is, have you received that gift? If not, it's yours right now, free, a gift of grace, God's presence for you. He wants to be with you. All you got to do is trust him that Jesus lived for you and died for you to give you new life, renewed life in him with God forever. And if you have more questions about that, talk to me, ask me about it. We'll, we'll wrestle through things together. We'll, we'll chat about it. And by the way, if we do talk, I don't want you to be hesitant about asking any questions at all. No, no, all questions are fair game, okay? We'll just bang it out together. That's why, that's why we are here, okay? If you have received this gift, I want to encourage you this morning, especially as we sing, be mindful of his love for you. Remember his grace for you. Remember his salvation and redemption for you. And let that just fuel your expression of worship to him this morning. If you need to receive the spiritual presence of Jesus and his provision, I invite you to receive the best Christmas present of all time. It's Jesus himself, the bread of life. He will save you. He will change you. He will be with you. It's what Christmas and what all of Scripture is all about. I'll close with this passage. And this passage might sound a little bit more Christmassy than the last passage that we read. You might be a little more familiar with it. It's Matthew chapter 18, and it says this. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So remember this Christmas that God is with you because of Christmas. You can be with him and you can worship him because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Life as it is supposed to be. Life with God. It is the best gift you will ever receive. Worship him for that this Christmas. Amen? Would you bow your heads with me?